Uh, we've got to get to the Word. We have a lot to do. So, back to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 for the fourth and final time. You may think we've spent a lot of time in this chapter. Uh, you may think four weeks is a long time. You're going to see after this week how much we still have to skip and how much more we could do because God's Word is so rich and so wonderful. We have focused for the last couple of weeks on the men of Sodom and on the sin of Sodom, homosexuality. But actually, the focus of Genesis 19 is not on the men of Sodom and the sin of Sodom. Why then have we focused on the men of Sodom and the sin of Sodom? And basically from only two verses, verses four and five for the last two weeks. Well, it's because of the cultural context in which we find ourselves in. 500 years ago, we would not have needed to spend so much time on this topic. 50 years ago, we would not have needed to spend so much time on this sin. But today, we must spend time unpacking and understanding the sin of homosexuality because it's kind of the sin of the day, except that it's not according to our culture because it's not even a sin. And so when we come to a point in God's word that is so directly contradicted by the world, we got to step back and examine why that is. The whole world is telling you one thing, and you're hearing it constantly, and it becomes hard to resist. Many have just thrown up their hands and given up in the face of the unending aggressive assault. We cannot do that. And so we took time to establish clearly that homosexuality is a sin according to God's word, and then why homosexuality is a sin according to God's word. But now we need to move on. We've talked a lot about homosexuality, but we haven't talked a lot about the actual focus of this text, which is Lot. And so we're going to conclude our study this morning of Genesis 19, looking kind of at a broad overview of the rest of the text, focusing on Lot. And some of you may not like this uh, a lot, uh, and I'll stop with the, the Lot stuff soon, but I can't, I can't resist. Verses 4 and 5, we have seen great men, great sin of the men of Sodom. We saw it called unnatural desire in Jude. We saw it called an abomination according to Leviticus 20.13. And the result, verses 23 through 29, God rains sulfur and fire on Sodom. He overthrows and destroys the city. But we've also touched on, and Pastor Mike just read for us, verse 8, and the great sin of Lot, the offering up of his daughters to rape and abuse. Then at the end of the chapter, we're going to see in a moment his incest with his daughters, a great perversion according to the verse before Leviticus 20:13, verse 12. And the result, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. If God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw. And heard righteous Lot three times in that one verse. Lot, according to God's inerrant and inspired word, was righteous. And that's not my claim. That's the claim of Second Peter uh, chapter two, verse seven. And so we need to sort that out. How in the world can we say that Lot is righteous? And this is important because this is kind of the whole point of the story. Remember, we're always to be asking ourselves as we read God's word, especially kind of the Old Testament narrative. Why is this here? If God's word is sufficient, able to make you wise for salvation, if it is exactly what God chose to preserve for us, then why this story? What's the point of Genesis 
19. And we said almost two months ago when we started this chapter that the point was the glory of God as the point of everything, as the all glorious God reveals himself in all his glory to his people. And he does that in this chapter through the twin themes of judgment and salvation, justice and mercy, destruction and deliverance. God is teaching us something about himself and something very important about how we, sinful man, can be with he, holy and righteous God. So we've seen God's terrible judgment of Sodom, which is only a a hint, a foretaste of God's terrible judgment to come. Lot is spared from the terrible judgment of Sodom. And you should want more than anything else to be spared the terrible judgment to come. So then, why and how is Lot saved? We've seen the sin of Sodom, destruction. We're seeing the sin of Lot, mercy, rescue, salvation. Why? And do you then know why and how you can be saved? We're going to read. I'm going to pick up where Pastor Mike left off in verse 20. We just split it up because it's a long chapter. We're focusing on, on Lot. I want to do everything that I can to show you how terrible Lot is so that you can then appreciate how gracious God is. Your job is to see yourself in Lot as Lot, to be warned, but then more importantly, so that you can then appreciate how gracious God has been and is to you. You who are a lot like Lot. So first, we're going to look at righteous Lot's progressive, sinful love for Sodom. We're going to see how much this man loves this place. Then we're going to see, as a result of that, his failure to actually, biblically and savingly, love Sodom in any sort of way. And then finally, that will hopefully, if I can show you how terrible he is for 40 minutes, hopefully that will then help and prepare us to see the great love and the great grace of a righteous God who saves the unrighteous, like Lot, like you, and like me. So that's what we're going to try to do. How is Lot righteous? Let's figure that out. Look back down at the text in Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to pick up in verse 20, and we'll read there to the end of the chapter, and we'll be done with Genesis 19. So Genesis 19, verse 20, pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. This is Lot, remember. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He, the angel, said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, and Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, 
And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That is the end of the story of Righteous Lot. If you would, bow with me and let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now for your help. Father, this is a hard word. Father, this is your word, and you have given it to us for a purpose. You have ordained in your good and meticulous sovereignty that this day, that every single individual who is in this room and who is joining us online is here to hear this text and the truths that you have for us in this word. So, Father, I ask for your help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Please help the preaching of your word, Lord. Please, please help the hearing of your word. Father, may we protect ourselves from elevating ourselves over Lot and looking down at Lot. Father, help us to see ourselves in him. Help us to see the great wickedness of our own sin and Lot's sin. Father, so that we can then see your great mercy and your great grace. Father, use this word to teach us and to shape us and to mold us. Use this word to increase our love and affection for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so righteous lot. Really, let's, let's see. This is the end of the lot cycle. So let's do a kind of a quick review of these chapters. Because we met Lot all the way back in chapter 11, verse 27. He is Abraham's nephew. His father, Abraham's brother, Haran, dies. And so then Lot journeys to Canaan with his uncle. Lot is connected to Abraham from the very beginning. And that's going to be very important. Because it is right after we meet Lot that God speaks to Abraham and begins making his promises to Abraham. Kind of the first and foundational promise. Chapter 12, verse 2. God says, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is apparently going to be Pretty important. Lot is connected to Abraham. But pretty quickly, Lot begins to drift away from Abraham. Lot goes down into Egypt with Abraham, uh, comes back up out of Egypt in chapter 13, and they come, both of them, greatly enlarged and greatly enriched. Their possessions are so great, chapter 13, verse 6, that the land could not support both of the men and their, their families. There's conflict between their people. And so Lot, great, Abraham graciously offers Lot his pick, his choice of the land. Lot then turns and sees the goodness of the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a delight to his eyes. And so he journeys east. We've seen the refrain, journeying east in the beginning of Genesis. is not a good sign. 13 verse 12 then says, And Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as or near Sodom. 
Very next verse. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's six chapters before the chapter that we just read. So again, there's, there's some foreshadowing. There's a, uh-oh, uh, this, this is not a good sign. Sodom's reputation would have preceded them. Lot would have known the nature of the Sodomites. And yet Lot still chooses to head east, and he still chooses to settle near Sodom. But he's not done. Next chapter, 14, Lot gets in trouble because of his connection to Sodom. There is a war. Lot gets caught up in it. Lot gets captured. And in chapter 14, verse 12, we read, they also, kind of the, the marauding armies, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So from settling near Sodom to dwelling in Sodom, and Lot suffers the consequences. But he ends up rescued by Abraham. So his connection to Abraham results in great blessing and benefit. But afterwards, Lot goes right back to Sodom. Because when we meet Lot again in our chapter, chapter 19, verse 1, there we see Lot now sitting in the gate of Sodom. Near Sodom, in Sodom, the gate of Sodom. It seems like a progression, doesn't it? Uh, the gate at that time was kind of the, the seat of economic and, and political life in a city. It's kind of yeah, like Wall Street and City Hall and Madison Avenue kind of all rolled into one thing. I consider the book of Ruth where Boaz needs to go and contra contract his business uh, to redeem Ruth and to marry her. He goes to the gate of the city and there he conducts his business with the prominent men of the city. So Lot is in the place of prominence and it seems that he's become a man of some prominence, some significance, maybe even some influence in the city. He's very much a citizen of the city. He has a home there. And as a man of substance, as we saw in chapter 13, who's probably a significant home, his daughters, we see in verse 14, are engaged to be married to men of Sodom. We'll see in chapter 24 how important it is to Abraham that his son not take a wife from the Canaanites. So here's Lot doing the opposite of that. Lot appears to be quite at home, quite comfortable in Sodom. Seems that he may be even a leader. Some have tried to argue that he's the governor or the mayor of Sodom. We don't know uh, for sure, but he is a man of some sort of influence and significance. Lot is very much in Sodom and of Sodom. And it seems that Lot is very much like Sodom and that he very much loves Sodom. And there are going to be great consequences for this. Okay, but it all started with a look. It all started back in chapter 13, verse 10, when Lot, remember, it's constructed just like Genesis chapter 3, when Lot lifts up his eyes, he sees the land, he sees that it was good and a delight to his eyes, and so it was desired by Lot, just like Eve. And again, guys, this is, this is how sin works. No one decides one day just to have an affair that day. No one wakes up one day and decides all of a sudden to reject the faith. These things always happen incrementally, progressively. And so we have a great example here in, and warning in Lot of the sinister nature of sin. I like all the S's with sin. Sin separates. Sin is stupid. Sin seduces. I couldn't come up with a good S here. Maybe sin scales or something. It doesn't, it doesn't really work, but sin, it escalates. It always starts small, and it only later gets big. Consider Psalm chapter 1, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Few chapters have, have shaped my thinking in my life more than Psalm chapter 1. Blessed, 
very first word of the book of the Psalms. The, the thing that everybody wants, blessing. It comes from the word which most literally means straight or right, in, in line with or, or in accord with how things are supposed to be, which then came to mean happy, good, blessed. That's what everybody wants. That's what the world is trying to sell you, the good life. That's why you waste so much time on social media looking at all these things, cycling through these things, because you think that they're good and can offer you the good life. So the world says, here's how to get blessing. How does the word, what does the word say? How does this blessing come? Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so it's very significant that the first thing said about blessing is what it is not, where it is not found. It is not found with the wicked. And notice the downward progression in that verse. Walks, stands, sits, kind of moving along, lingering, standing still, seated, planted, home. That's what's happened to Lot. And that is the logical progression of all sin, unless interrupted by grace and repentance. So the, f- the first verse of the psalm says blessing is not found there. Where is it found? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So blessing is not found in the world, but the word. And don't miss, though, how this blessing is directly connected to influence. It's to who you are listening to, to who you are connected with, to where you are taking your cues from. You are influenced and directed either by the world or by the word. And whichever one it is determines blessing or cursing. Lot was increasingly influenced and directed by the world. He walked, then he stood, and he is now seated in the gate. Many of you right now are are walking in the counsel of the wicked. Some may be closer to standing in the way of sinners. Lord willing, I pray that none of you are yet seated in the seat of scoffers. The nature of sin is progressive. That's what's so insidious and dangerous about it. It starts small with a look, with a listen. That sounds pretty good. That looks pretty nice. That, that makes sense. This version of the good life is compelling and, and sounds plausible. I, I want that. I, I need that. I have to have that. So church just kind of, this is a tangential point, but I just kind of want us to be aware through the example a lot of, uh, and be careful of, of just this progressive, seductive nature of sin. What are you flirting with? right now? What are you kind of just playing with? What are you listening to? I mean, here's one of the great tests of, of your influence and what you're taking in. How's that going for you? Like, how are you doing? How's your soul? Are you more godly or less godly or whatever this thing is that you're listening to and heeding and, and, and attracted? Are you being drawn closer to the Lord by that thing, whatever you're giving yourself to? Or is that thing drawing you away from the Lord? Here we see Lot draw near to Sodom, and Sodom draws very near to Lot. Uh, Lot moved into Sodom, and Sodom moved into Lot. Lot liked Sodom, and as a result, Lot ended up becoming a lot like Sodom. And so he starts off developing this, this sinful love for the world, for Sodom. He liked it a lot. Point number two. And because Lot so liked and thus ended up like Sodom, one of the main things I think that we see here in this chapter that we miss is that Lot utterly fails to save Sodom. Entirely. He utterly fails to truly love Sodom. 
Lot liked the pleasure, he liked the comfort, he liked the ease he could get from Sodom, but he had no actual biblical, actual true love for Sodom. No love that seeks the good of the loved. No self-sacrificial love uh, service for the good of another. Because Lot's love was only about the good that he thought he received from Sodom, the, the pleasure, the comfort, the ease. And because that was his focus, he ends up doing no actual good. Sodom, which is what love is. I want us to be clear that Lot had no impact. He had no influence on the wickedness of the city of Sodom. Lot was righteous. We're going to get there. I'll work to explain that. Lot is saved. Righteous Lot has been living in Sodom for and who knows how long, a long time. And Sodom is utterly destroyed. So what happened? Did Lot not seek the welfare of the city? It's a catchphrase today. Was he not in the city for the city? Was he not engaging in and transforming the culture of the city? Well, apparently not. I think what we have here is a pretty timely warning for the church today. We've already seen Lot in the gate. He is a man of some sort of standing and significance in the city. He has interactions with them. He knows them. He's working with them. He's, he's yoked with them. He's connected to them in some way. He's, he's laboring in a part of the city and working alongside the Sodomites. But when things go down, when the horror happens in verses 4 and 5, and Lot goes out and seeks to save his guests and stop the Sodomites from their wickedness, what happens? Look at verse 9. Look at their response to a man of some significance who's been living in their city for some time. Lot tries to stop them, but they said, stand back. And they said, oh, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So it's pretty clear that Lot has had no effect on these people. He has had no impact on this city. He has been there for years, maybe, and they do not respect him. They do not listen to him in any way. Um, they are opposed to him, and they immediately turn against him. And then look at verse 14. Here the angels are urging Lot. Hey, there's urgency. It is time to go. It is time to get out. We are about to destroy this wicked place. Is there anyone else? Well, his sons-in-law. And I'm somewhat speculating here, but they were sodomites. Verse 4 was pretty clear that all the men of the city were involved in the disgusting display of that night. Were his sons-in-law involved? I don't know. Maybe. Lot goes to his sons-in-law, the men to whom he was going to give his daughters in marriage. Uh, the men who he must have had relationship with and have known and they would know him. And he goes to them and says, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed his sons-in-laws to be jested. That's, that's a tragic verse. They're, they're incapable even of taking Lot seriously. Why? Because they know him. They had observed his life. They would have observed his, his love for Sodom and his likeness to Sodom. And so now here he is all of a sudden, completely out of the blue, talking some silliness about God and, and judgment and destruction. And they're incapable of even hearing his words because they know his life. And there's such a disconnect between the two that they think this must just be some sort of joke or, or madness. I wonder maybe how many of our co-workers and friends would think the same thing if we went to them tomorrow to warn them of the judgment to come. 
I wonder how many of our friends and coworkers that we've known for years and decades we haven't even warned of the judgment to come. I wonder if they would know so little of our faith and would have observed so little of a difference in our lives that it would seem to them as if we must be jesting. Reading Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor right now, and it's depressing, devastating in many ways. It's a wonderful book, which is very convicting. This is what he writes, something I was reading the other day as I was working on this sermon. Baxter writes this 400 years ago. Not quite. Men would sooner believe that the gospel is from heaven if they saw more such effects of it upon the hearts and lives of those who profess it. The world is better able to read the nature of religion in a man's life than in the Bible. They that obey not the word may be won by the conversation of such as are thus eminent for godliness. Church, are we eminent for godliness, famous for godliness, known for godliness? Maybe our evangelistic struggles and ineffectiveness are somewhat related to holiness struggles and ineffectiveness. And maybe, like Lot, our holiness struggles and ineffectiveness are somewhat related to our love for and likeness to the very world upon which God has already pronounced judgment. And maybe, like Lot, that love for and likeness to the world that is under the judgment of God deceives us and then leads us to engage that world on its own terms. As we are increasingly like the world, maybe we increasingly act like the world, and then maybe we increasingly think that our mission as the church is similar to the world's mission. Lot was in the gate. He was a part of the culture, a part of the community. He was a leader of some sort. Maybe he thought he could have some sort of impact and change on it through those means. But here we see Lot's utter failure. He did not change the culture. The culture changed him. He did not transform the culture. The culture transformed him. He did not save the city. The city is utterly destroyed. And so I think that Lot could serve as a timely warning to us as the church today. There is great danger to trying to compel change through the same means that the world tries to compel change. Through the political process, through protest, through redistribution of power and resources in the name of social justice, the church is always tempted to look at the world to see what the world is doing and because we so desperately want the acceptance of the world then to start to act like the world. It should always be a giant flashing warning light to us when the church uh, takes its cues from the world and desperately scrambles to do what the world does in the way that the world does it. Let's let Lot be a warning to us, the church, of the great danger and folly of attempting change, cultural engagement, and moral reform, whatever you want to call it, in the world apart from the gospel of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lot has either done absolutely nothing, or he has attempted to reach Sodom by being like Sodom, and when judgment comes, they mock him, and they reject him, and then they are utterly destroyed. And that will be the experience of the church today if we persist in the way that we are on. One commentator writes, the Christian who attempts to reform the world will find that the world wants none of it, and none of him, unless he gives up Christ and his principles and compromises with him. So the world's been just fine with Lot. 
Until Lot says, hey, hey, hold on, God, judgment. And they say, nope, we want nothing to do with you. So churches, our message is not morality. It's not justice. It's not about all the things that our culture is for right now in the ways that it is for them. And thus, the church is tempted because the world is for those things in those ways. We're just so tempted. It's so easy to follow in line and to follow along right now. Lot looking and acting a lot like Sodom utterly failed to have any actual impact on Sodom. Lot, in imitating the world, did absolutely nothing for the good of the world, and it is destroyed. What if Lot, with all his wealth, comes into the city and it's just this great economic boom to the city? He, had, he and Abraham were equally sized, too many people. Abraham had just mounted an army of like 400 men. This would have been a huge household. He had brought all kinds of money and economic prosperity. Maybe he had done all kinds of relative good for the city for a while, and then it's utterly destroyed, and everyone's dead. Church, what are we doing? Here we are in this great city. I mean, it's not hard to make parallels between New York City and Sodom. I mean, come on, that's not too difficult. What are we here for? And how are we going to go about it? What is our mission, our purpose? What is the church to do and how? I'm concerned that there's just a lot of confusion on this right now. A lot of the church looking to the world and looking like the world, which I suspect is somewhat because a lot of the church loves the world. But 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Yeah, we need this one today. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's not about marriage. That's not what that verse is about. Do not be, it applies, but that's not what the verse is about. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None is the point. Lot loved the world and the things in the world. Lot was unequally yoked with unbelievers. Lot was in the city, but absolutely failed to do any good for the city. We are in the city. How are we going to succeed at actually doing any good for the city? Not Lot's way. Not the way of many today. But, but the way. The, the, the only way. How do we help? How do we engage, transform, reform, whatever you want to call it? Now listen to this. Uh, Peter sent this to me a couple weeks ago. I thought no one had read some John Newton that I hadn't read. But he sent me Newton that I hadn't read. And I, I love John Newton so much. Just read him. Listen to this. It may be a little long. It's not that long. Um, but this is what we're going to be about as long as you're stuck with me here. This is actually a sermon that John Newton preached to a society in London that was about helping the poor and about bringing reform to the poor in London. How does Newton say that that happens? Here's just a snippet of this wonderfully long sermon. Go look it up. The gospel of Christ, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, is the only effectual means for reforming mankind. I just love how clear and simple that is. The only effectual means for reforming mankind. To the man who possesses and knows the use of this grand, this wonderful machine, if I may be allowed the comparison, what is otherwise impossible becomes easy. The gospel removes difficulties insurmountable to human power. 
It causes the blind to see. It causes the deaf to hear. It softens the heart of stone. It raises the dead in trespasses and sins to a life of righteousness. No force but that gospel is sufficient to remove the mountainous load of guilt from an awakened conscience, to calm the violence of tumultuous passions. Man, we need that today. To raise an earthly soul from groveling in the mire of sensuality or avarice today to a spiritual and divine life, a life of communion with God. No system, oh, it's a timely word, John Newton. No system, people are talking about a lot about systems today. No system but the gospel can communicate motives encouragements and prospects sufficient to withstand and counteract all the snares and temptations with which the spirit of this world by its frowns or its smiles will endeavor either to intimidate or to bribe us from this path of duty but the gospel rightly understood and cordially embraced will inspire the slothful with energy and the fearful with courage it will make the miser generous melt the grouch into kindness Tame the raging tiger in the bosom and in a word, expand the narrow selfish heart and fill it with a spirit of love to God. Cheerful, unreserved obedience to his will and benevolence to mankind. I'm just going to keep going. I hope we are too wise to attempt this or to he's talking about the whole thing they're trying to do or to expect success by any power or exertion of our own unless we faithfully and humbly make use of the instrument which God has appointed for this purpose. The instrument is the gospel. And I will venture to affirm without hesitation and without exception that no man, whatever his abilities and qualifications may be in other respects, though he had a zeal of a martyr and the powers of an angel, no man will be able to force the strongholds of Satan, to cast down the lofty imaginations of men, or to win souls to holiness and happiness without the gospel. But if he be called and taught of God to preach that gospel, he will do great things. He will be honored and successful. He will win souls. He will be numbered among the wise. I, it's a real, I was wondering, you think I preach long sermons? They preach really long sermons. And Newton gets a knock for being not a good preacher. Um, I, I just don't know how that can be the case with that sermon. It's a wonderful sermon. Um, I want to be numbered among the wise. I don't want to be locked. I don't want to utterly fail to help this city or this neighborhood or those around us. And so, according to God's word and Newton's right exposition of that word, we must then cling to this gospel. We must believe that it is the power of God for salvation. We must believe that it is the only effectual means for reforming mankind. The gospel is how we love our neighbor. The gospel is what we have been given and tasked with as the church to love and to seek the welfare of the city and to save those around us. Because we have a wonderful warning here before us of what not to do and how not to do it. And I hope that a wonderful reminder and encouragement that the gospel is the only hope of the world. And the gospel is the only tool of God's people to actually reach and reform that word. Why is that? Why must the gospel be our only focus? Okay, it's because of what it is and what it does. Let's move on to point number three. Let's look. We've seen righteous Lot's love for the world, which is not actually love. Uh, we've seen his failure to love Sodom at all, and Sodom is destroyed. Point number three. Uh, let's look at the righteous God's love. 
for unrighteous Lot. Look back at the text. Verse 15. The angels urge Lot, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. That's, that's why the gospel must be our only focus. Punishment. Verse 24 is why the gospel must be our only focus. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. It's not that many to read a day if you want to read the whole Bible, actually. Um, and in the very beginning, in only the second of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible, we are warned, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. From the very beginning, God kindly and graciously warns us that the wages of sin is death. Why? It's because God, your maker, is life. I'm loving Psalm 16 right now. We did it two nights in a row for family worship. because I've just, I, it's, I don't know if it's ministered to the girls, but it's ministered to me. Um, how little do we believe and live like we believe these truths? This is just a couple of them from Psalm 16. It opens, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Do we believe that? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do we actually believe that? Do we really believe that we have um, and that there is no good apart from God? Which, if that's true again, by the way, that's why the only thing we would be seeking to give to people is this thing that is the only good, which is God himself. Do we believe that it is in and with him that there is fullness of joy, that eternal pleasure is found in and with this God? That's why sin is so deadly and devastating. That's why Genesis 19, because sin is a rejection of God. This God of Genesis 19, or of, of uh, Psalm 16, this God of Genesis 1 and 2, the God in whom is all good and joy and pleasure and life. So you reject him, you get death. That just makes sense. And he has kindly warned us of that from the very beginning. He's saying, I am the good life. I am life. I am where you will find good and pleasure and joy. I made you for me to run on me, to revolve around me. I want you to find good and pleasure and joy. So come to me. Because those things are found nowhere else. Run from me and you will find nothing else but death. And that's what we're seeing in Sodom. And that's why the gospel is and must be our only focus. Because in the, it's in the gospel, the power of God for salvation in which God restores us to himself. In which he takes care of the sin problem that we created. He takes care of it himself. The sin that separates us from him. The sin that is death. The sin that results in the destruction of Sodom. The same destruction eternally that every sinner in this city will face if that sin is not dealt with. But look at Lot. They warn him in verse 15. Look at verse 16. He lingers. They offer him escape in verse 17. He bargains with them in verse 18. We see how much impact and influence Lot had on his wife in verse 26. As Sodom is so firmly planted in her heart 
that even in its destruction, she loves and longs for it and looks back. In that sin, it's death and destruction, and we run towards it, and we pursue it, and we get caught up in that death and destruction right alongside it. And that's what happens to Lot's wife, the one who is married to righteous Lot, and he utterly failed her. Then there's verses 30 through 38. I'm just going to conveniently breeze over verses 30 through 38 um, for the sake of time. But what an awful story we see there in verses 30 through 38. What a tragic account. Why is that there? Why does God take a significant portion of his not very long word? You think it's long, but it's not that long. Why does he give significant attention to this story in that word? Well, in part, it's just to further communicate the great consequences of sin, even for the righteous. Remember verse 8. Lot had sinfully and wickedly offered up his own daughters to the wicked sodomites to be used as objects to satisfy their sinful sexual ends. And in these verses, we see the consequences. The tragic irony, as Lot himself is used as an object to satisfy his daughter's sinful sexual ends. That's not to say that Lot is not without fault here. Of course he is. He is reaping what he has sown. He seems to be a man prone to excessive drink. It's not like, hey, let's try this thing. No, Lot seems to be pretty familiar with this. Like father, like daughters, Sodom has just been destroyed. Here we see that Sodom remains. Just keep in mind how many similarities are to this story in Lot and the flood in Noah. There's a whole lot of similarities into how those end. Noah ends up drunk in a tent, and we see the sinfulness of humanity reborn in Canaan and Ham um, right away. Here we see Sodom just destroyed. Here we see Sodom reborn in this cave. But the real point of this account is verses 37 and 38, as we see that this is the origin of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Remember, Moses is writing this account. I don't know exactly when. He's writing it to Israel somewhere in the course of probably their wanderings in the wilderness. They are about to, or they just have, I don't know, but they're about to meet the Moabites and the Ammonites, and it is not going to go well for Israel, as Israel is led into sexual sin um, by uh, these people groups. And so there's a lot that we could cover there, but at least we can see that there are great and grave consequences to Lot's sin. And guess what? That's the end. That's the last mention of Lot in this story. Sometimes this section is called the Lot Cycle. And the Lot Cycle is over. And it ends with Lot, drunk in a cave, having incestuously impregnated his daughters. 2 Peter 2.7. Righteous Lot. What? And how? This is, I mean, and this is really good, I think brothers and sisters. Lot is a great warning to us. But if we can see this rightly, I pray that God can help us see this rightly. He is also a great comfort to us. And Lot is awful. He is awful. He in and of himself is not righteous. He is not good. He is in and of Sodom. He has failed to help Sodom. He has offered up his own Daughters, as a father of four daughters, I have a really hard time with that verse. He has gotten drunk and slept with his daughters. And you, brothers and sisters, are very tempted right now. I know that I'm very tempted to feel pretty good about myself because I'm not nearly as bad as Lot on those things, right? 
Okay, but here's the good news of Lot. Here's the point of Lot, is that you are a lot like Lot. You are a lot more like Lot than you think. We must resist the temptation to look down on Lot. Resist the temptation to feel good about yourself because you are better than Lot. Instead, you desperately need to see yourself and your sin in Lot. Why? Because again, look at what happens to this awful, wicked Lot. Uh, We've seen how terrible he is. Go back to verse 16. Imminent destruction is coming. And he lingers. He's just been surrounded and assaulted by a whole city. And he wants to stay. Listen, you can't imagine that. Because that's what every single one of us does. Every single time we come back to our sin. We're tempted and flirted for our sin. But he lingers. Um, And so the word is repeatedly warning us of the judgment to come. We all linger. We look. We love the world. But look at what God does. Lot lingers. The rest of verse 16. So the men, the angels seized him and his wives and his two daughters by the hand. Why? How? The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. I just, I kind of, in my mind, silly see them picking him up and carrying him outside the city. Brothers, that's, that's salvation. That's rescue. It's not God sitting back. It's not God casting the line out. Uh, You know, you're kind of floating in the water and God throws you the raft. If you'll just grab the raft, uh, you'll be saved. No! This is God taking the initiative. This is God running into the burning building and pulling us out of it. Although we think the fire is pretty and we would like to stay. No, they seized him and they drug him out of the city because of the great mercy of God. Sounds a lot like John 6, 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's not the best translation of the word. You know what else that word draw means? It means drag. It's the same word used in John 21, 11, when Peter drags the net full of fish ashore. Peter's not standing on the shore like, come on, fish. Come on, guys. I want you up here. No, he is getting them and grabbing them and physically himself pulling them in. It's the same word used in Acts 16.19 in Philippi when Paul angers the wrong people and they come after them. They seize him and they drag him into the marketplace. They didn't get him there by inviting him. They drug him there by force. That's the same word Jesus uses of the Father's drawing or dragging of us. It's what the angels did to Lot and it's what we, every single one of us need because we are so in love with the world. And in love with our own sin. This is a beautiful picture of the rescue from the sin that we so love and that we're so desperate to cling to. Thank God that his grace is greater than all of that sin. His grace is greater than all of Lot's sin. His will prevails over ours. God rescues sinners just as these angels rescue Lot. And so it is only by grace that Lot is saved. It is only by the initiating, uh, arresting, rescuing grace that Lot is saved. Lot is a great sinner. But God is a greater Savior. You are a great sinner. But God is a greater Savior. Don't miss seeing the greatness of your sin. Because in so doing, you will miss seeing the greatness of God's salvation. Grace is the only way that Lot and the only way that anyone can be called righteous. And here's the last thing. I'll stop with this, because this is really important. 
That grace is given to Lot only in and through Lot's connection to God's man, to God's covenant head, to Abraham. What's the point of this story? Don't forget that 18 and 19 go together. 18, all about justice and judgment. God's judgment of all sin and evil is justice. We've seen that. But also don't forget 1818, all about covenant. What's the point of this story? Why is terrible Lot saved? How in the world can he be called and counted righteous? Look at verse 29 of chapter 19. Here it is. Chapter 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Remember that strange exchange that everybody gets wrong in chapter 18 when Abraham and God are going back and forth in 22 verses 33? Abraham wasn't trying to save Sodom. And Abraham was trying to save Lot. He was interceding on Lot's behalf. He intercedes for Lot. And Lot is saved. It was on account of another. It was on account of a covenant head, a representative that Lot was saved. It was only Lot's connection to Abraham, the Abraham to whom God had said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is quite a blessing here for Lot. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here is that verse coming to fulfillment. Here is Lot being blessed because of his connection to Abraham, the one through whom God has promised to bring blessing. Lot is counted righteous because Lot is connected to righteous Abraham. And how is Abraham righteous? We looked at this in great detail. Chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that? Abraham believed faith in God. Because Abraham himself wasn't righteous either. Guess what? We'll see that next week as we get to turn and look at Abraham's sin. But God is righteous. And what God has been doing from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 reiterated in his covenant the same promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is that he is promising to send a seed, a son. He is promising to send this one who is going to come and fulfill all righteousness. The one who is truly going to be perfectly righteous. We missed this. I missed this for so long. We have to get this. This is the only way that anyone can be with a perfectly righteous God. It is if you yourself have perfect righteousness. God does not lower the standards. He is perfectly righteous. Relationship with him requires perfect righteousness. I don't have it. You don't have it. None is righteous. No, not one. That's why God starts making these promises from the very beginning. That's why the whole Abraham story, including this part of it, is all about God fulfilling the promise of a son, a coming seed, whom we know is Jesus Christ, who would be God himself, perfectly righteous, and who would represent his people as their covenant head, who would live in our place, fulfilling all the required righteousness, who would die in our place, paying the penalty that we deserved for our sin, and then who would rise again, defeating Satan, sin, 
and death. And it is only in him that anyone can be counted righteous. It is only through faith, the faith, the trust that connects us to another. And we made a very good and clear point this morning in Sunday school that some of us have very small faith, but very small, genuine faith is saving faith. Because again, it's not faith that saves, it's Christ that saves. It's the object of our faith that saves. And faith is what connects us to another, a representative, a covenant head, a substitute. Just as Lot was saved only through Abraham, we are saved only through Christ. It is not our own goodness. We don't have any. You don't have any. Lot had none. I have none. The whole point is that Lot is not good. It is painfully evident in this story. And the whole point is that you are not good. But that is unfortunately not always as evident to ourselves. Which is why we must see ourselves in Lot. You must see your great unrighteousness. See the perfect righteousness that God requires. And then see the free gift of righteousness by grace through faith that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that anyone can be saved. 2 Peter 2.6 God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemning them to extinction. Why? Making them an example of what is going to happen to all the ungodly. So the New Testament tells us that this story that we have been spending four weeks in, this terrible destruction, is here for us as an example, as a warning, that this is what will happen to everyone, every sinner, everyone apart from Christ, all the ungodly. I mean, are we really then going to waste our time making the ungodly a little more comfortable? Maybe confirming and affirming them in their ungodliness? When Genesis 19 is here to tell us this is what awaits everyone apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus applies this story in the same way. Luke 17, 28, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to reserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Church, remember Lot's wife. Remember Sodom. Remember righteous Lot. This should be, again, I'm convinced that we just don't believe in the judgment of God. I'm just convinced. I I mean, I little believe it. Um, I think God has been sure. We we just don't live like we actually believe that everyone apart from Christ dies and goes to hell for all of eternity. The church just doesn't really believe that. We, We don't live like that. This is a sobering warning from God's word that that is what God says is the case. And so what we have here then is a very kind warning. It is kind that God warns us of the wages of sin. There is great justice in God's judgment in this story. But we also see here great mercy and great grace. God is showing us both how he judges sin and how he rescues from sin. And it's only grace. It's only that judgment that sin demands being poured out, not on us, but on his own son, Jesus Christ, in our place, the righteous one, so that we can then be counted righteous. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, declare us righteous, declare us right with him. See, church, that's how amazing God's love is. He loves unrighteous people enough to send his righteous son for us so that we can be counted righteous and rescued and saved and once again be restored to perfect uh, pleasure, fulfillment, identity, life-giving relationship with him. And that is the only way that Lot can be called righteous. And you are just like Lot. And so that's the only way that you can be called righteous as well. Come then to the one who offers you escape from the wrath to come. Love the one who offers you escape from the wrath to come. Church, we have been warned of the wrath to come. Are we going to occupy our time with warning others uh, to save them from the wrath to come? By speaking to them and pointing to them to the only Jesus Christ who saves. If you would bow with me and let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not soft pedal things. Pray that you do, not, you do not pretend that things are okay or well. Pray that you warn us, Father, of our condition apart from Christ. I pray that you warn us of, I thank you that you warn us of the, the state of the lost and of the state of the world. Father, forgive us for how apathetic we are. Forgive us for how little we believe these truths. Father, forgive me for how apathetic I am about the future and the souls of the lost around me. Father, I pray that you would grab a hold of us and that you would change us. I pray that you would convince us of the great and terrible truth of Genesis 19. That this is the end for all, apart from your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would focus us as a church based upon this chapter and this truth. I pray that you would redefine, reorient our, our purpose and our mission. Father, I pray that we would believe that you have told us what we are to do. That is to make disciples. That is by teaching them of Jesus. We are your witnesses. We are your lampstands. We are your ambassadors. Father, forgive us how slow we are to speak. The message that brings eternal life and satisfaction and wholeness and happiness. Father, I am very thankful that you are very patient and faithful to your sinful and weak people. Father, we are so very like Lot. We thank you that there is full and final forgiveness uh, for our sins purchased for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that that wonderful grace, Father, would transform our hearts and would transform our lives to live them for you, uh, the God who sent his own son to live and die for us. Father, I have said many words. I pray that your word would be what wraps our hearts and our minds. I ask now that your spirit would do your work uh, through your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.